everyone's expectation of who we were, what we're about, the space that they were in, I had just uh, committed clearly some cardinal sin by singing, baby, you're gonna be the one that saves me. By the way, if you've ever tried to diagnose the lyrics of that song, like the, the depth in that, there's none in The song is absolute nonsense. It's not good. It's not bad. Like, I love the song, but a wonder wall. Look up interviews with the writers of that, and they're like, I don't know, it just sounded good. Like, a wonder wall's not a thing. Maybe it became a thing after, but it's not like, oh yeah, wonder wall, referencing that ancient play by Shakespeare. Like, not a thing. Uh, Shane Claiborne, uh, who's a sort of author activist, uh, who's a follower of Jesus, um, who uh, I have grown to admire over the years and um, read a book of his. When I first got uh, connected with him a bit and began to learn a little bit more about what he was about and what he was writing, this is going back years, um, there was a, a, a moment on national television on Good Morning America, he was being interviewed because it was when America had first gone over, uh, the, I believe it was the first, second Iraqi war and we'd gone back. Um, and uh, there was an interview with him as a Christian peace keeper and they were just wondering what's going on and he wanted to be there as a, as a follower of Jesus to, to, to be there for the people of Baghdad who were caught in the middle of Iraqi forces and American forces and obviously this is a bit tenuous and so they put him on the air thinking he's just going to say something kind about you know hey we, we just want to be here and just love folks well and, and he looks right into the camera there's clear expectations they've clearly scripted this this is like I think it was Good Morning America like there's an expectation of what he's going to say. They don't just let anybody like jump on the air at Good Morning America and say whatever they want. And he gets on and he looks in the camera and he says, I will die for the people of Baghdad. I will not kill for them. And I will die for the people of New York, but I will not kill for them. And they cut the feed. And they went back, okay, so that was Shane Claiborne. Great. And just pretend like, and it just went on. Uh, there's one time where um. I, uh, I noticed my social studies teacher, as we would stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance, I noticed that he kind of did this like belly scratch thing when the pledge would come on. Like he sort of, his hand was like in the general area, but it wasn't like a, and then he didn't say the pledge. I, I, and sometimes I could see him mumbling something, but I didn't know what it was. I went over and I, I asked him after the uh, class, I said, Hey, Mr. Uh, Mr. Buxton, what, what were you, did you say the pledge? And he, uh, he looked at me a little nervous and then saw that I was genuinely asking. And so he sat me down and he just began to explain, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Jesus and um, I have this understanding of the world, not that you can't pledge allegiance to a country, but for me, I pledge as much allegiance to followers of Jesus anywhere and the kingdom of God anywhere in the world, not just America. Um, so, so uh, and he just began to explain very eloquently this sort of understanding of how he sees the idea of pledging allegiance to a government versus uh, a God. And I just sat there in that moment, like I sat there in the Good Morning America moment, like I sat there as I'm singing Wonderwall. You're like, how do these tie together? They were all moments where the, like I, I my entire paradigm just sort of opened up. Like I thought, that's not what I expected. That's not what I expected. That's not what they ex expected. Like you, you, if you, if you're that, then you should do this. 
I had an understanding of my audience, and they had an understanding, I should say, of who we were as a band that I violated somehow. And, and Good Morning Mary, they had an understanding of, of who this person was and what they would say. I had an understanding of my history teacher and what people do in this country when it comes to the flag and what you should do. And all of a sudden, right or wrong, agree, disagree, I'm not making any value statements at the moment, but like there was a moment where like I, I, I just had my, my paradigm kind of opened up and I thought, hmm, if I wasn't me and raised by the parents I was raised by, at least in the, the situation with my history teacher, I can imagine somebody being really frustrated. Maybe some of you, even as I tell that story, you're like, you're like your blood's boiling. Right? You have a hard time with that. Maybe some of you, the same thing happens with the Good Morning America story. Maybe some of you, for some reason, have so much vitriol for Oasis. You're like, I can't believe my pastor would sing Oasis. There's this scene in the, God, in the Gospels. Luke 4, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles. Verse, Luke 4, verse 20, uh, let's start at verse 29, 28. All the people in the synagogue, so Jesus has just given a sermon, stood up in the synagogue, one of the first things we have recorded that he does. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. When they heard the thing that he had just said. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's a great life verse. I want to start at the end of the story because Jesus does something that gets a bunch of people so angry that they want to throw him off a cliff. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like, what? Why this story? And if you're trying to like, if you're Luke and you're trying to get people to believe the Jesus story, why include a story like this that has your hero getting driven off a cliff? Before we get into the context of the story and I just share just a, just a few thoughts with you, I, I, wanna, I wanna just emphasize something that maybe doesn't apply to you, but I think applies to a lot of us who are in the room and who are followers of Jesus. I recognize not all of us are followers of Jesus. For those of us that are, there's sometimes we get into our head this idea that like Jesus, like scenes like this, or Jesus getting crucified on the not neon cross, like because he was like too nice or something. Like he just, he loved everybody and all the religious people and the Romans didn't like people and so they killed him. Like we, ha we have, I think, this, I, this neutered, like, whitewashed idea that, that, like, we actually, if we think about it, it doesn't make any sense as to why Jesus or anybody could say anything that would get you driven off a cliff. Or it becomes more one of those, oh, those were the times. <laughs> those were the days when we used to be able to just take someone and walk them off a cliff when they said something we didn't like. By the way, our political discourse in this country seems to be approaching that. Amen? Jeez. You said, what? Here is the ideological cliff we would like to push you off. 
It's interesting. What made the crowd push Jesus off a cliff? Now, when I read this, you're going to be very um, confused further, I think, by this story, for those of you who've never heard it. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. So people are into him. There were a lot of traveling prophets and people who were saying exciting things that would get people riled up. They're making sense of the Old Testament. So this is, this is an in-house story at this point. The Jewish people are coming to hear other prophets and they're telling stories about what God, what they believe God's doing. They're trying to make sense of, of what the Old Testament is about and, and what, where we are now. Remember, these Jewish people are under the boot of the Roman Empire. They are being oppressed. He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is home. He went home. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. So he's quoting his tribe's sacred texts. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then... He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Which is a Jewish way of saying, That story is about me. Let me read it again to you. You following me right now? Cool. The spirit of the Lord is on me. So he's saying, Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus, right in front of you. This is a text they all would have known. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is good news. And sometimes, if you've grown up around church, this text somehow gets almost um, interpreted as the reason the crowd was mad as that he said that he was the one. But as we will read, that's just not the case at all. Rolled up the score. Everyone's eyes are fastened on him. He began saying, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They're pretty amazed at how gracious his words are. Are you telling me that Rome is going down? Are you telling me that you're Isaiah or the prophet or maybe even the Messiah? Like there's an openness to Jesus are you going to be the one who puts our tribe back on top? Are you going to be the one who casts down our enemies? We know from history there was a lot of prayers at this time within the synagogues that all had to do with praying for your enemies to get killed. <laughs> there was, a, there was a, when you're being oppressed by such a, a group as Rome, it wouldn't be a reach that a lot of your prayers are, God, will you strike them down? They're quoting those parts in the Psalms that always feel a little uncomfortable when you're reading them. Like these were the prayers that were being prayed. These were the, the things that were being quoted. And, and so they were surprised at his gracious words. Seems nice. They're clearly not mad that he said, this is, I, I'm the one that they're talking about. 
All spoke well of him, were amazed. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. So they're in their hometown. Anyone ever been back to your hometown? You go back for Thanksgiving? Go back for Christmas? Is there like a neighborhood, like restaurant or bar everybody goes to? Anyone done that recently? You go back and somebody in your group become a one of my a friend in my friend group um, is now working. She's like the producer on Oprah's show. She's a like super big deal. And of course, like classic, you know, she was like kind of, you know, like not, not super popular, sort of a nerd. Like no one, like no one really knew much who she was. And now she's just like crushing it, right? Such is this, always the story. So she shows up and everyone's like, wait, aren't you? You know, this is kind of what's going on. Like you, whoa, you're saying some big things. You're doing some big things. Aren't you? Aren't you just that little nerdy girl I remember back in high school? Aren't you Joseph's son? Like, aren't you that, that carpenter who had that whole scandal that happened 30 years ago with the woman Mary who claimed there was like a virgin birth or something? Like, isn't this your, your pedigree? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. So Jesus is anticipating that they're coming at him. He says, I know, I know what you're about to do. You're about to make me prove it in some like, like superhuman, supernatural kind of thing. This, by the way, earlier in Luke 4 is what the devil does. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. So he's already been healing people. And they're like, well, show us what you got. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophets accepted in his hometown. I assure you, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath and the region of Sidon, Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Nahum the Syrian. Let me pause here. He's like, I know what you're about to do. You're about to discredit me. You don't think this is real. You're like kind of amazed by my gracious words. They're not ready to throw him off a cliff yet. But he's basically saying, you guys aren't going to get what's going on here. And clearly there was something that was said in his sermon that caused him to, to, to lean into this. And then he quotes these two Old Testament writers. This is important. He quotes and talks about Elisha and Elijah. And in this story, he's highlighting two epic prophets. Like two prophets that are big, big, big deals in this tribe's narrative. And so here they have Elijah. There's a great famine, he said. There were many needy widows in Israel and Elijah didn't go to any of them, but he rather went out to a Gentile widow living in a city-state known for its, its enmity, its frustration with Israel. So he quotes one, he goes, hey, you remember that prophet? When he did his like big stuff and healed people and set the, what's trying to set the world right, he didn't go to you, the tribe. Example one. Example two, Elisha. And in the next prophet, there were many lepers in Israel, but Elisha didn't heal any of them. Instead, he healed Naaman, who was from Syria, which was basically the greatest enemy of Israel. 
Jesus makes a point of saying that these two great prophets did not show favor toward the widows and leopards of this tribe, but rather towards a Phoenician woman and a Syrian general. And then all the synagogue was filled with rage and they sought to kill him. Why? Why? You take two seconds if you're with somebody who like you, you, you maybe you know or you're feeling very, very um, outgoing today. Just, just ask them. Like, answer that question. Why, why is that enough to turn this crowd into rage? Talk amongst yourself just for a moment. Just turn to the person next to you. Any good conclusions? I think if we're, probably many of you are honest, right? At least for me, when I was honestly coming to this text, I have to like, wait, what? Why does that quite elicit this extreme a response? It's tough to kind of come to a parallel on this. One, I mean, this is not a good, not a, not a perfect parallel by any means, but it'd be like in the middle of World War II and someone standing up and some prophetic figure who's been leading the charge of doing away with some of the evil that was happening in Japan and Germany and standing up and going and like praying for and speaking healing and grace over Hitler, like right in the heat of the moment. Like maybe some major political figure getting up. And after 9-11, I sometimes like to imagine George W. Bush getting up and talking about turning the other cheek. And even as they're burning the American flag and doing all of this stuff overseas, he's talking of, he's speaking of grace and forgiveness. And like I, I, it would be something like that. These people are being oppressed and Jesus starts talking about a grace. Remember, they already said they're amazed by his gracious words. And then Jesus then gives them examples from their own story of how God's grace and favor and love are bigger than the tribe. And if you don't get locked in and see what's coming, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. We talked a lot about that over the last couple of weeks, right? Missing it. <laughs> this is what God seems to do. A few examples. Later on in Luke 6, Luke tells us that some who came to listen to Jesus and be healed by him came not only from Judea, but also from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. This is Luke 16. 
These are, these are places that are like outside the realm of grace in the Jewish mind in this, at this time. In chapter seven, Jesus says about the Roman centurion. So this is an actual Roman pagan centurion. Not even in Israel, he says, have I found such faith. In other words, when it comes to faith, this pagan has an advantage over even the most religious people in Israel. Shortly after, Luke tells us that the common people heeded his words, like the poor and the, even the tax collectors were baptized. The tax collectors, right? We've talked about this, are the most despised people because not only are they represent Rome, but they're like, they're, they, they were, they were, uh, they're, they're, they're uh, abusing and taking advantage of their own people. They've betrayed the tribe, the tax collectors. Um, and, uh, and, and then we're told that they, the tax collectors were the ones who came to hear him were amazed and many come to become followers of him. In contrast, we're told that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purposes for themselves. And then still in chapter seven, Jesus defends the worth of a sinful woman to a Pharisee who has invited him to dinner. And then, I mean, we could keep going, right? But my, one of my favorites, chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable about a man who prepares a great feast, but when the time came, for the special meal, all his invitees offered excuses. All the people he wanted to come to the party didn't come. At that point, the man ordered his slave to go out into the streets and out into the lanes of the town to invite people in. And this included particularly, quote, the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. That is people who were considered sinners. I, I want to just mention this all and shared this text today in this little mini-series as we're walking through the book of Luke called First Seek. Because if you're new with us, we're taking the beginning of the year to just focus our attention on prayer and fasting. And so the, 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 the things that, that came to mind as I just came to this text, thinking about what it means to expect something from God. And then it got me thinking about, well, who can come before God and, and ask God of things? And then it began to, 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 to cause me to think as we're praying for revival about the most unlikely people and who those are in our world who come to him. And I thought, in a funny way, this story, midway through two weeks of seeking God in prayer and fasting is so powerful for us. Because I think on the one hand, it invites those of us in this room who feel like I can't. I, I just don't have it together enough. I don't think the right things. I have too many doubts. I have too many questions. I have too much sin in my life. I have too much shame. And this story, like Jesus is talking about, about you. He's going, hey, hey, it's not just the people who have it all together. It's not just the people who say the right things. In fact, often the people who say the right things are the folks that don't have it actually all together that in some way your awareness, this is the great reversal of the kingdom of God, your awareness of how jacked up you are is actually like the first necessary like, like thing you need, ingredient for you to, to even be open to my saving grace and love. There were many here who had an expectation of what Jesus would say, what a prophet would say, what God was up to, and what God was up to was not 
what those religious elite and what the tribe thought God was up to. Which brings me to a second invitation for us. <laughs> Which is, my brothers and sisters, your opinion on what God is like and how exclusive or inclusive of what he has to say to you and what your life's to be about and what God wants to show you in this new year and the fresh joy and fresh hope and new beginnings that he has, don't assume you know the right answer. To place yourself underneath this book and underneath the spirit of God, ultimately underneath the kingship of Jesus is where the life is, but it will force us to be humble and to say, maybe I don't have all the right, like, I, I, maybe I am not thinking clearly. Maybe as soon as I have an understanding of what God would do in this situation, I want to continue to humble myself and to be open. I want to commit going into this new year to know more about what his word says. I'm not going to come with all of my expectations. My, 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 uh, one of my favorite bones to pick, like when it comes to even engaging this book, is like the, the phrase, God would never say that when they hear something that feels too exclusive or inclusive, depending usually on your like paradigm. And I don't know about you, but the more I study and, and read the, the, about the person of Jesus, the more swept up into his story of love and grace I am, the more surprised I am at how gracious and inclusive he is, and the more surprised I am by how serious he takes sin and the death of it. He's Lord. If he's a good father, you're gonna feel both like like conviction and sharpening and you're going to feel the grace and encouragement in life of Jesus. Look, I would never do that. Well, this, this, God would never invite me to that sort of thing. God would never call me into that. God would never comfort like that. Well, God could never forgive me for that. Like it plays on both sides of the aisle, Right? It plays on whether you're sitting here going, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, Andrew, you do not know what I did last night. I barely made it here. I am like taking Advil as you talk. <laughs> Someone's like, oh. <clears throat> and others of us, right, that we're walking around maybe with a bit of like superiority of we know, I know. What does it look like for us as a church halfway through this, this, this two weeks of prayer and fasting to press in further and deeper and to say, God, what do you have for me as an individual at the beginning of this new year? And what do you have for our church? And recognizing this just unbelievable welcome that Jesus offers, this picture that Jesus gives us. Jesus stood all, like all of their impassioned and informed ideas about God on their head. And what I've found in my life, I wanted to like write this down, like God tends to do this. Like God turning the a whole world upside down and reestablishing our value systems. Like that means he's turning your world upside down too. And so just as we allow this scene to wash over us, um, 
I think we'll sometimes hear the disturbing question, when we know only too clearly what God ought to be doing, are we prepared to take a second opinion? God's opinion. Every sermon I've ever given, every message you've ever heard I pray, comes all the way back just to Jesus as King. And what does it mean to trust that? That's why I love singing. Like, like if we wanted more, like to invite more people in our church, I feel like we shouldn't sing like big songs about like, I don't know. Like these like sort of songs of abandon and wonder and sing for 35 minutes every Sunday. But like I, I, I get swept up the more I like stab and kill my cynicism and critical spirit and open myself up to the wonder of God as King and realize not just the bigness of his invitation to all of us, but to realize and to see and to own. <laughs> that God's way, man, there's no way to like say this in a clever, cute way. <laughs> like God's way might be better than mine. Can I take us back to Sunday school for a minute? Like maybe right now, like where might God's way be better than mine? Where might I out of like straight joy and freedom go, hey God, I just wanna uh, once again, throw my hands up in the air as an act of surrender and go, there's this thing I have a lot of questions on, or there's this thing nagging at me as Andrew keeps talking that I don't have a lot of questions on, I'm pretty sure on that I feel like you might be trying to break my paradigm on of what it means for me to press into this or that or the other. God, if your forgiveness and your grace and joy is that big, there's some people I need to extend grace and forgiveness to or need to ask grace and forgiveness of. I, I don't know, I could go down a litany of things. My, my, my invitation for us ultimately is that we would begin um, or, or, or go further in our surrender to our God as King. That unlike the people at a Bridges Fell concert, and unlike the class who, if they heard my social studies like pitch, would have turned, that we would be a people, <laughs> those are not great examples, that we would be a people that would not like the crowd turn on our Lord and Savior. I see it happen in the church all the time when we become aligned with the things of the world. And we trade our faith for the king for a political party. And we trade our, 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 our passion for the king for whatever en vogue thing happen, like seems to be happening at the moment. When we trade our allegiance to the king like for cheap entertainment and distraction. Jesus in the story said, I have come to open the floodgates. It's all gonna change. I'm declaring the favor of the Lord and it's not just for you or you, it's for all of us. And in the way, in that moment, it, it like wrecked the minds of that tribe. What, what thing in your life is God inviting you to like allow him to speak conviction life into? That might cause you for a moment to wanna run that thought off a cliff in your mind. Lord Jesus, 
as we're about to pray, our hearts are an open space for you to come and to have your way. We are open. Sovereign Lord, teach us to listen to you even when you're saying things that we do not want to hear. Lord, our hearts are open. Our hearts are open. Do whatever you want to do. Say whatever you want to say. We're here to pray that prayer all over again. Move however you want to move. Because for a lot of us, and again, I know not all of us, God, for, for many of us, we, we, we trust you or we want to trust you or there's something in us that says, yeah, that's where the, the action is. That's where the life is. That's where the love is. That's where the truth is. And we're, we're conflicted and we're, we're, we're cynical or we're critical or we're, we're crushed by our own expectations or sin or weight. And we just ask, Lord, would you just break us free in that? Like this moment, like the last, like what, eight minutes we got left together. <laughs> you can do that. Maybe you're already, I'm betting if your spirit's at work, Lord, you're already doing that. You laid a conviction on my heart this morning to just walk through this text. Just to walk through it and to allow that reaction of the crowd and the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to, to wash over us and to open us up to new possibilities. And so Lord, you are more loving and more gracious than we often imagine. Lord, we know that as our Savior and King, you long to form us and shape us. Lord, into the people you created us to be. And so might we receive encouragement and conviction, grace and the weight of our sin. And might we, as we come to the table and as we sing this prayer, might we find healing in your name. Amen. Healing in your name. Amen. 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 And already as I'm like preaching this, God, God's like bringing some things up to me like that I, yeah, I'll share with you later. Uh, I want to invite the ushers up. Can we stand together? Uh, for our guests today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we do this thing where we, we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and it's this reminder of this, this great, the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. God laying down his life for us, showing us what he is like in his, in his son and saying this, do you wanna know the kind of king I am? I'm the kind of king who lays down his life, who saves you by my grace and love, not through anything you have to do. That's the sort of king that I am. And so as we take the bread and dip it in the cup and as we sing this prayer, I pray God would just stir in our hearts the things that we need to hear this morning. Uh, I'm just trusting uh, God to move in our midst. So maybe come with expectant hearts. You ready? Ready? Okay, let's do it. Let's sing.